Hi, and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, where when you vote and speak up, great things happen. I'm Mara Davis, radio and TV host, social media activist, and political enthusiast. And I am Jen Jordan. I am a state senator, lawyer, dog mom, and suburban housewife. We are talking about things that have to do with women, but have to do with everything. And by the way, thanks to everybody who has given their support. Uh, This is our third podcast, and we're very excited with the way things are going so far. And it was definitely a big week last week, as in the governor of Georgia wrote a piece to the AJC uh, griping about their coverage, talking about how he didn't like the way the numbers of COVID-19 were being reported in the newspaper and he had something to say about it. And he wrote directly to the AJC complaining about their coverage. And that actually got a lot of, uh, a lot of play. And we want to talk about the relationship between the press and politics on today's episode. And it was inspired by that. Yeah. And I think specifically because there was, um, there was such a response to the governor's um, op-ed in the AJC, and specifically because the governor did not take issue with the fact that the AJC was reporting factual information. He just didn't like their spin on it. He seemed to care much more about the framing of it as opposed to just the straight reporting uh, of facts. And so um, that kind of plays into it. It's like, what is that relationship? And especially when a politician or an elected official, when a journalist writes something that they don't like. Well, he has a very contentious relationship with the press. I want to play a little clip. This is from a press conference early on in COVID-19. And he gave a speech and he opened it up for questions and out of the gate was not happy. Let's take a listen. Well, that will take some questions. Thank you so much. Blaine Alexander with NBC News. Sir, you question about the decision to reopen. You mentioned President Trump. Uh, twice last week, the president criticized the decision, said it was too soon, as have a number of governors or mayors across the state. And the state doesn't meet the White House threshold for a recommended two-week decline in cases. Was well, so that a question said, or an opinion? Nope, that's a question. I'm, well, I'm, you just made a statement. You didn't ask a question. What's your question? Getting to the question right now, sir. Okay. Thank you so much. For those who say that the move came prematurely, that this came too soon, can you tell us specifically what data you use to determine that this was the safest choice? Well, I know it may be hard for NBC News to understand this, but all the data is publicly available on the Public Health Department's website. As I've said before, I made those decisions. Okay, so... Already on the defense before she even asked a question, and obviously we know how it went, and and that was early on in the pandemic, and there were a lot of mixed opinions or mixed, we were getting a lot of mixed information at that time, but I personally don't think that is a great way to go about things. I think you have to kill people with kindness, especially when it comes to journalists. I think a good politician can turn something around. I watch the Sunday shows all the time, and I see these politicians, they'll move the needle to somewhere else and turn it around and make that journalist forget the question that they asked. But specifically with that clip, I remember that. And that had to do or was around the time when um, the governor was making the decision to reopen. 
right? And that was very controversial because a lot of the things that he initially said that could be reopened were like salons and tattoo parlors and that kind of thing that just kind of blew people's mind. And what he kept talking about was that the decisions were made on the data, right? It was made on the numbers. But the problem was that you couldn't see what data he was talking about and apart from that, the way they were presenting it on the Department of Public Health's website, um, it really was misleading. It made it look like there was a decline in cases when the reality was we were going up. And so, you know, that's kind of where that was coming from, from him, because she asked about where are these numbers? And he basically clapped back at her. Um, and so for me, that doesn't seem like the right question <laughs> that you should push back on, especially when all the, all the reporter was asking for was basically, where's your information? Where's right. your proof? Right. I think it it's immediately on the defensive. It was just like, I this is a press conference. I got to take a question and I don't even like you. What's your question? And I think there could be a smoother way to do that. And sometimes people are just, I think we're in this era now where they people just see the press as they're just trying to get a gotcha moment. No, I'm not going to lie. There are people who are trying to do that. They're definitely journalists who are trying to do that. But in that case, it was a very, very fair question. So he had this op-ed in the AJC. And when we talked on the last show, we couldn't mention this. You had written a response to that op-ed. Yes. And... You were playing it very cool because you didn't know if you were going to get published and you did get published in the Sunday paper. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, I was I was glad that they did that. A little surprised, but glad. I mean, that's got to be kind of cool to get the Sunday paper. Oh, editorial, Senator Jen Jordan. Yeah, but it's kind of the same thing with everything. I mean, when you're putting something out there for people uh, to read, I mean, you, of course, are going to get some criticism. And-, and you did. And you did. So basically, and you, you all can Google the piece and, and read it for yourself. So you were basically saying, hey, uh, look out for families. We all want to come together on this and give us some facts. Would you say that's a fair like synopsis of what you were trying to say? Look, basically what I was saying is don't attack the press um, for reporting accurate information just because you don't like the information. And if you want to be lauded, if you want to be patted on the back, if you want to have an attaboy, then actually do something that's going to merit it. Um, so that's that's where I was coming from. It's like, look, I'm not happy with the numbers. You're not happy with the numbers. But it has nothing to do with the AJC or the media. And it was unfair. So a friend of mine... Um I was talking to, and I won't say her name because I was like, you know, everybody now I'm like, you got to check out our podcast. Give us the jig. Come on. And she felt, and she does lean a little bit more a Republican conservative, and she felt that there were elements of your op-ed that were putting people on the defensive, as in there's a lot of shaming going on. And I did see this early on when the salons opened and like, People would put a picture on social media at a restaurant or at a hair salon or people going about their business in certain ways. Because I think when it comes to COVID-19 and all of this, there's a zero to 10 comfort level and everybody has their different comfort level. And she felt that there's a lot of shaming going on when everybody's sort of picking and choosing what's comfortable for them. How do you react to that? I don't think that had anything to do with my op-ed. I mean, look, I think there may be some shaming going on, but I think a lot of it is, you know, maybe she was feeling a little bit bad. 
I mean, and maybe she has been feeling like um, people are looking at her. Um, but that's everybody's right, especially since we know now that wearing masks actually protects lives. So it's not about personal liberty. It's not about, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's like when you make a decision not to wear a mask, especially what we know in terms of the science now, then what you are communicating to everybody else is that you don't care about them. I feel that. I was in the grocery store yesterday and I see people without masks and I can't help it. I knew, I had a moment where I was in the checkout line. A lady was walking in and she didn't have a mask. And you can see it in my eyes. I am shooting you the shade. I am. I'm like, you're coming into Publix. And she walked back to her car and I felt like it was a win. But let's get back to the press for a minute because there are so many people now... Uh, And we see this a lot locally. People are saying fake news media. People say the media is overblowing the numbers. Is there a certain amount of hype that the media is putting out there for clicks? I'm sure, right? I'm sure there. I mean, the media is a business too, right? Um, But I'll tell you with respect to the pandemic and COVID in this state, Um, The media has played such an incredible role in trying to get information out to people, especially because um, the Kemp administration um, has not been providing information the way they need to. They haven't been transparent. And really, the only way that we're able to get information is when it's reported. Um, So that's the problem. The problem was you you know, if the media reports accurate numbers or accurate information, you can't get mad just just because you didn't want it to get out. I mean, that is that's their role, right? So now we have a situation where they are going to come out with data uh, in a couple of months. And now uh, there's a like a bounty on it. Basically, it's going to cost something over $20,000 to be able to publish that data. So specifically what you're talking about is, um, so journalists, lawyers, um, activists, they use something called the Open Records Act in Georgia. And um, a lot of folks know it um, by FOIA at the federal level. And basically there's a law in Georgia that says that anything that is a public record or generated by a public agency, you as a citizen of this government and the people who pay the taxes are entitled to see it, right? It's yours. And so you can send a request. And really the only thing is, is that you're supposed to pay copying charges back when we copied. Um, And they're supposed to respond within three business days. That is the intent. The intent is it needs to be quick. It needs to be cheap and it needs to be accessible to, to just about everyone. And specifically in terms of what you're talking about, the AJC or some reporters with the AJC sent um, an Open Records Act request um, to the Department of Public Health and DCH, Department of Community Health, um, and asked for certain information, and maybe even GEMA too. And those entities, those agencies came back and basically said, well, maybe we'll get back to you spring of 2021. Oh, yeah, and it's going to be $25,000. That's really unacceptable. It really, really is, because... As we talk about the relationship between politics and the press, when you do have a do-good message or something that you do have to get out to the press, I've always, as someone who's been a media personality, and certainly I have no, I can not connect on a politician point of view, but sometimes I keep 
my friends close and my enemies closer, where you do have to have a good relationship with those people because one day you're going to need to get some information out there and somebody to take your call. Well, especially in the middle of a pandemic. That's That's the point. We need them pushing good information. That's right. So in in just a minute, um, we're going to talk to Greg Bluestein, who is the political reporter for the AJC and is pretty much the guy you got to be following for all Georgia politics. He has a great team behind him. But he certainly um, is covering all of this from both sides and was in the middle of this editorial uh, situation. So we're going to talk to him. But before we do, I want to get to uh, something that, that about a Georgia politician broadcaster. Uh, rest in peace, Herman Cain. Oh, yeah. That one was tough. But all you're going to hear from the media is how many new cases, how many people died worldwide, when in fact, The virus is being contained here in the United States of America. Many have once again questioned the former candidate's decision to attend the Trump rally in Tulsa last week. Hand ringers and naysayers also talked about, well, shouldn't be having a rally where you got all of those people there. Kane says safety measures were taken to protect those in attendance. Now, I know that it takes about two weeks before if you come in contact with it, that you might come down with some sort of the some of the symptoms. But that all of the precautions that could be taken were taken. What do you think about if if you're talking about journalists and journalism, but social media carries so much more weight? This week, we had Herman Cain's team. Obviously, we know uh, Herman Cain died of COVID-19, but his team is still tweeting from that account. Is that a good I can see the argument for doing it because it's there's a big fan base already there. But I think they need to be more transparent, Team Co- Team Herman Cain. Or it should be Team COVID because ultimately that's what killed him. Well, and that's, that's what got everybody's attention. So there were all of a sudden tweets from the dead um, that were coming from Herman Cain's account, which were really disconcerting. Um, But then the thing that really got people's attention this week is that literally from Herman Cain's account, they were retweeting an article that basically said that the media had overblown the dangerousness of COVID-19. This is coming from somebody that died from it. But the, the, the reason why I bring this up as far as like journalists and the media and politicians is that it can be more effective to give the message through your followers that way because if it's said to you enough times you're eventually going to believe it right and so is that to you as a viewer or a supporter past present or future you're gonna believe that it's hard not to laugh. And I'm sorry. And no respect to Herman Cain. And I know a lot of people that worked with him and really liked him as a person, even if you didn't agree with his views. But it is crazy to have a dead guy's tweets. Well, I mean, the good thing is that the the blow up around the tweets at least made them change um, the account or the name on the account to something like Team Kane. And then they they clarified that the tweets were coming from members of his staff and, and family, um, not that 
anybody really thought that the tweets were coming from Herman Cain. Well, do we know? Well, you know, maybe we don't. <laughs> I mean, look, I follow quite a few dead people on Twitter. Uh, Joan Rivers I follow, Tom Petty I follow. I mean, there's definitely people I follow where the team is sending out information, but this was just like completely bizarre. But we are living in a really bizarre time where that can be effective for people. That's maybe their version of journalism. And, and to kind of follow up on something like that, which is interesting, especially with social media being um, such a driver of political messaging nowadays and, and being such an important part of campaigns, is when you have these accounts from elected officials or people running for office. And I mean, it's like a, a tweet every, you know, hour or two hours. Um, so it's clearly not coming from that person. Um, but it's being done in the voice of that person or, or from kind of a first person point of view. Um, and it's not saying that it's coming from a staff or being written by a member of their team. I mean, to me, that seems like that could be pretty dangerous. I think that is definitely problematic. And we learned that with Senator David Perdue's campaign, where they had something that was perceived to be anti-Semitic. There was something on a Facebook page, and it was a... They changed the, the size of John Ossoff's nose. They did. And it was not a great look. That, that, that takes somebody affirmatively doing something, right? This isn't a default. This isn't like a, oops, I forgot to turn this off kind of thing. I mean, someone had to affirmatively doctor a picture. Right. He's apologized-ish. Uh, but I don't think he has to John. I don't think so either. I think they they pretty much said, oh, we're taking care of that staffer, but every single person is a reflection of you. But what's interesting is like sometimes these accounts, as as you say, will tweet things out constantly. And then if a journalist will ask them about that, then they get on the defensive, like, well, I didn't say that. And it's like, well, it's in writing right here. You did say that. Well, and that's why I think people need to be really careful when they're doing this, because um, that is attributed to you. That is you, whether whether you think you can disavow it in the future or not. But look, we're all people. Even if you're running for office, you're a person and you're going to have a life outside of being an elected official. And so what I would caution folks is whatever you're putting out there, you better be feel comfortable that if you are not an elected official one day and somebody digs this stuff up um, and asks you about it, that that you need to understand that that you own it. That's right. So all of Senator Jen on Twitter's tweets are her own. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know how these journalists keep up with it because you have to follow so many Twitter accounts. And I know as someone who's an interviewer and a guest booker, the first place I go to research somebody is their Twitter feed. I go right there and I will dig deep. And I know that they're doing that too. That's fascinating. I'll have to remember that. You should remember <laughs> that because I think it's a great snapshot when you're interviewing somebody to find out what's in their head at, in that moment. Yeah, that is true. And it's not a gotcha moment. Look, I think there are a lot of journalists who definitely want, everybody wants a moment where their story gets shared or they got somebody to say something that no one else could. Uh, but I think at their core, especially come, when it comes to true 
political journalists, they are not there to do that. They are there to cover the story because they have a, a pure interest in politics. Well, not only that, but they're there for the long haul. Yeah. I mean, whenever there's a gotcha or whenever you have someone that's just gunning for somebody, those types of journalists, they don't last, especially in smaller communities. I know everybody thinks Atlanta and Georgia you know, we're a huge metropolitan area. Um, but in terms of politics, in terms of political journalists, I mean, you know, it is a very small community. And also, it's not glamorous. And we're going to talk to Greg Bluestein about this. You're schlepping around going to like Elks Club meetings or you're going to like, you're not going to a red carpet thing, you know? You're going to uh, like town halls you're going to let's face it you're going to some boring shit you're going to some fields <laughs> look a lot of this stuff they're they're fields they're barbecues yeah they're they're lots of barbecue joints especially you know whenever you're covering the georgia gop in this state um but no it isn't fun and and you are there just as an observer to really take down what's going on? So I'm really curious to know from Greg, because I think it's, um, it's, it's, and I take it personally because it's like, so we're, you know, sort of laying the foundation of a lot of these reporters. And, you know, I'll mention Raul Bali, who reports um, in the Georgia Lake area, and he's a great journalist. You know, that guy is, is just trying to do his job. And the amount of vitriol that some of these journalists have to face. I mean, I can tell you stories from my own personal opinion or my own personal experience um, from my, I, my family works at a major news network and he had, and his staff has been harassed just for having a logo. Well, and then that's the question for Greg, right? Which is, has he seen a difference as a political journalist and how he's treated and people approach him? Um, basically pre and post Trump. All right, well, let's call him. All right, we called Greg Bluestein from the AJC and he is now on the line. Greg, this is very exciting to talk to you, I have to say. Awesome. Well, I am driving from a Kelly Leffer event in Gwinnett County to Savannah for another story. So I'm right now on the 16, which is the most boring stretch of road in Georgia, probably. I'm so glad you said that because we were just talking about how your job can be very taxing, grueling, and boring. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit more about that? Not always taxing, grueling, and boring. There's definitely exciting parts. But yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, to, to, to be able to capture Georgia, you got to be on the road a lot, right? Um, and sometimes the events come to you, like in like 2017 with the 6th District Race, where everything was kind of in like my backyard. I mean, there was literally events I could walk to from my home in Dunwoody. Um, so, you know, 20, so a year later in 2018, we're like, you know, you're all around the state. You're going from, from you know, Hey Hira and uh, small town Georgia to like to, to North Georgia mountains, to suburbs, to coastal towns everywhere in between to try to capture these candidates and capture what's going on on the ground in Georgia. So a lot of travel, a lot of that stuff. And it's been a, there's, of course, like just the, campaign speechifying and going through documents and trying to figure out what, what the hell is happening at the Georgia legislature and all that that can be. <laughs> Me too, Greg. <laughs> so, <laughs> Greg, with respect to that, how has um, COVID impacted kind of your coverage? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's funny because I was, I'm thinking back to like early March when, so my wife is a, works at Emory Healthcare, so she she kind of had seen this coming for, 
for a while and they were ramping up for it. I was at a, um, I was at my brother's kid's bris in Nashville and we went out that night and it was like a pack. This is like early March, late, I think it was late February. It was like the last, last weekend of February. And we were out that night in Nashville and we we're looking around and it was a packed bar and we're like, this is not going to be happening anytime uh, pretty soon. And my brothers thought I was crazy. Um, but we kind of thought that, you know, I didn't know to the extent this would happen, but I kind of thought like a change was coming. And the Georgia legislature, you could feel it because they were in the middle of a session and suddenly you know, people weren't handshaking anymore. They were, they were fist bumping or they were elbow tapping or whatever it was going to be. But um, there was an event that Kelly Leffler had at the Cobb GOP and Nikki Haley came in found to endorse her. It was a big event, packed crowd. It was like kind of early March. And I turned to Doug Richards, who's a reporter for 11 Alive, and I said something like, well, you know, we were talking about what questions we were going to ask Nikki Haley. And we tried to ask some on-topic ones. But I remember saying, like, we have to ask the pandemic question. And, and I said something like, we're all science reporters now. And that's really what's happened to, uh, no matter what you covered before, whether it be sports, whether it be features, whether it be schools, you know, politics, what a business legal every single beat over the over this past year has transformed in some way or shape or form into also covering the pandemic and that meant people like me have to suddenly boat up on like epidemiology contacts and you know add a bunch of new sources into our list of folks to call um and that meant sports reporters who are used to writing game stories and features are suddenly writing about you know even if they're still writing on their beat they're writing about how the pandemic has changed sports and many reporters were shifted to other other beats and other duties uh, throughout this year. I want to ask Greg about the op-ed that Gov- Governor Kemp wrote about the AJC's coverage. And knowing how hard that you work, and it was uh, not a nice reflection or not a nice uh, snapshot of the paper, how did that personally make you feel? I mean, part of part of my job is, is understanding this kind of goes with the territory, right? I mean, um, Stacey Abrams wrote an open letter about the paper in 2018, her, her campaign did. And it wasn't directed at me. That, that one was not directed at me. I, I mean, it was directed at the editor, uh, an editor's decision. But it didn't really matter uh, in a way because, like, the people on the ground thought it was directed at me. And so people who weren't happy with my coverage of her um, said, oh, yeah, even Stacey doesn't, you know, was upset with your coverage. And, and so, you know, you, you, you develop a thick skin uh, in that sense. But still, you know, I mean, you try your hardest to go cover these guys, uh, these candidates, these campaigns, these politicians, these issues as fairly um, and as neutrally as you can and try to tell both sides of the story. And we, in this case of the pandemic, we thought, you know, we, we argue that we are doing that. Uh, it is a very complex, hard story to tell. And it's not just the numbers behind those reports, because some of the numbers are easily available um, by through other tracking agencies. And it's not just that it's another study, because lots of studies have come out raising issues. This is a study from the White House with numbers, but also with recommendations. The people who are advising President Trump were uh, also recommending that Georgia fulfill. So, um, yeah, you know, you, you get, um, you, you don't like to see your, your institution's name jumped to the mud. Uh, it ain't the first time. It won't be the last. Um, this, this is a, uh, you know, even before Trump, uh, it, was, it was common for governors of, of both parties um, to go after 
to go after the media, but it's certainly accelerated when the president calls us, calls reporters the enemy of the state. And to a degree, you know, it, it, it helps energize Governor Kemp's supporters, you know, on social media and, and campaign messaging and all that. Um, but I, I also have taken pains to, 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 to help his administration and remind them that we are telling you know, uh, the full picture of this uh, of this pandemic and that there's a lot of comp- complicated numbers out there, but we're the ones trying to tell that story. Yeah. You know, what I've seen that's been interesting is kind of um, how Republicans and Democrats in the state have approached campaign events differently. Um, so I'm running for re-election. I have had no in-person campaign events um, we are not going door to door. I do not have a field program like I normally do. I mean, everything's kind of been turned on its head in terms of normal um, campaigning and how I would run this. Um, but in terms of what I'm seeing from reporting or the pictures or the videos that I'm seeing on the Republican side, it, it feels like um, they're kind of doing doing this what they normally do. Um, and yeah, Senator, that's kind of an exactly odd right. thing. Yeah, it's night and day. And um, I've been working on a few stories on that, on that thread. But yeah, I mean, the campaign trail is kind of back in full swing for Republicans. Um, and it's been getting there for the last few weeks. Uh, I think it was June or July where Senator Leffler had her, her, one of her first events um, back. And Doug Collins, her main Republican rivals, had events all over the state. and. Um, Governor Campus had events, and, and not just press conferences, but actual events. And, and like as I said, I'm, I just left a, a big Senator Leffler slash uh, Brian Camp event in Gwinnett County um, just a few hours ago. And you know, it's 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 like it's interesting for a reporter because, in one sense, like I, I'm super excited to get out of the house again, right, and have stuff to actually cover rather than Zoom meetings. But in the other sense, you go to some of these things, and there's not there's not many masks. I mean, I don't. Uh, it's not an exaggeration that there's only a handful of masks, and, and, and many many only some of the few masks are from the candidates themselves, and they obviously take them off when they start talking. But um, and then you know us reporters have masks on, but it it, it is kind of like business as usual in, in, to a degree, um, and I'm curious to see how that affects the campaign itself because. You've got Democrats who are coming into this campaign year eager to expand on Stacey Abrams' strategy of more in-person contacting voters because, you know, it came within a whisker of her defeating Governor Kemp in, in, in 2018. And now it's Republicans who are doing that, right? Now it's Republicans that are really pushing the, uh, pressing the uh, accelerator on their field programs and Democrats are left to find other ways to reach voters that don't involve personal contact because, um, because Democrats don't want to risk the spread of the disease. I have a question about what it's like when you show up at those events, because we see a lot of your fake news, fake news media, as you mentioned, enemy of the state and all this negative stuff. When you go to these events, are they happy to see you? Do they, do you, have you had any incidents like that? Or do you think that's all for just playing up for the base? Because I got to feel, Greg, if you didn't show up, they'd be like, why aren't you showing up? Yeah, I think you're right. And they'd say we're, you know, hiding in our living rooms and hiding in our basements. And 
Like I, I, I try to show up through as many things as I can physically get to, um, especially as things you know kind of turn up. Uh, and that that was like in seventeen, I went to like just about every event I could possibly physically go to because you learn a lot and you hear a lot, a lot of different things from the candidates than you would see on social media or you know in emails or in press conferences and that like. I'll say I, I have you know occasionally I'll, I'll get a fake news thing. Um, it happens more at Trump rallies. Um, but you know when you're going to these events, like the event I just came from, I probably knew <laughs> like a half the crowd, right? I mean, they're they're not. Um, there, there's certainly some you know, rank and file activists and just people who are just curious and, and voters. But there's also a lot of Republican officials and, and people who I've known through grassroots circles for years now. Um, and it's weird, like sometimes, like today, like a reporter take a picture with me because, uh, I don't know, they, they just, either they want to turn me into an embarrassing meme or what, but they, they don't do that. But do you ever want to say to them, like, you know, you're saying all this negative stuff about the press and, you know, you know me. Um, I know you probably can't, but I mean, I would want to say that. Like, I don't know. It's such a tough... Well, you know, the... Yeah, the, the funny thing is, this came up in um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the, the, who, who won the 14th district runoff um, up in Rome, Georgia, the, the Northwest Georgia district, based, uh, you know, kind of based out of Rome and stretches all the way out of Paulding County. She's the candidate that um, that has said xenophobic, racist, anti-Semitic things in the past, uh, got a lot of national attention, and she got the most national attention because she, she uh, espoused uh, theories for the beliefs from the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, she subscribed to that theory and uh, was is, is on the verge of becoming uh, one of the one of the few, if not the only, congressional member uh, because it's such a heavily Republican district who believes in QAnon. And um, she has not been happy with our coverage of that race. Um, and uh, I went to her, uh, to both her and her opponent, Dr. John Cowan's campaign events. So I go to Cowan's and it became pretty clear very early on that he was going to lose. So um, I kind of got, <laughs> talked to some folks there and then went to the hotel where Marjorie Taylor Greene was set up and I walked in the room and you know, didn't, didn't think twice of it. I got my laptop open kind of near the back. I was the only one wearing a mask. It, maybe maybe there's one other person. But I sat a little reserved because uh, I, I don't want to be close to other people during this pandemic. Set up my laptop and started live tweeting what she was saying, and um, right after she called uh, Nancy Pelosi a bitch. I just want to say to Nancy Pelosi, she's a hypocrite, she's an anti-American, and we're going to kick that bitch out of Congress. And declared that they would would run her out of town, run her out of Washington. Um, I got a tap on the shoulder, and it was Marjorie Taylor Greene's campaign manager who said, this is a closed press event, no reporters are allowed, you're out of here. And uh, I kind of stalled, and at first I was like, "This is just a weird situation. I, you know, what do I do? I mean, how, I've never been kicked out of a, a campaign campaign victory party, especially by a candidate who just won. Right? You know, who should be who should be super you know, excited to have the press? Um, but I kind of looked around. And I walked out of the room, you know, after after protesting and letting them know that I didn't agree with the decision. But then I was like, you know, it is what it is. Um, it, it was a hotel space, not a public public space. But I went to the lobby where he couldn't keep me up. And the weirdest thing happened. Um, it, it was, I knew a lot of those people in that room, too. It wasn't a huge crowd, but there was about 100 people. And I, I knew 
a fair amount of them, and several of them walked out with me just to kind of like sit down and and, and, and chat over and kind of laugh at, at what the campaign did by, by kicking me out. Um, and so it reminded me how much of this is just rhetoric, you know, aimed at the national media. But when it comes to like the local guys, even if they don't like what you're writing about their candidate, they're more than happy in some cases to go down and sit down and have a beer with you. And, and it's a very weird situation, right? I mean, I've had family members kind of repeat the enemy of the people lying to me. Uh, very dear family members, right? Uh, but we're just trying to do our job. And um, I don't take it personally, or at least at least I don't now. I, I, I probably did a few years ago um, because it was so, I don't know, it, it was so disconcerting. But I don't know. I'm kind of at the thing where I'm just trying to do my job. It's just rhetoric. Um, I, or, or it's not just rhetoric. I shouldn't say that because words have... have Words matter, but I, I try to not to let it derail me from doing my job, which is because I don't want it to bias me um, to report something, you know, against the people saying it. I, I don't, I don't want to be looked at as subjective because, because the, the party that's in power right now it happens to hate the press. Well, or at least the president. <laughs> well, we appreciate what you do. So. I really do appreciate what you do. And Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter, uh, you keep getting out there. You keep getting kicked out of places. You keep tweeting, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) We are such big fans, and uh, we know that that's not an easy job. And we also know that the next couple of months... We also know, uh, by the way, I don't know. I'm not sure if you heard that was one of Jen's three dogs barking. Uh, I heard something. Yeah, is, that, is, that the, is that the newest addition to the, to the Jordan family? Not, not Mr. Bean, but one um, of the three. But um, we, 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 we really do appreciate you. and We appreciate you taking the time. And we're just going to have to have you on again and see we, where we are in the race um, in all the political races in the next couple of weeks. We've got a busy few weeks ahead. And remember, I always tell people like, it, ain't, it ain't over November for any of us um, because the January runoff is a certain I know you guys know that, but a lot of our, a lot of our readers, viewers, listeners, um, I don't think have quite, it hasn't sunk in yet that we're, we're facing a, a January runoff in that, in that Kelly Leffler Senate race, no matter what, uh, pretty much, unless barring a huge you know, development. And so we're going to be the center of the national, the nation's political attention um, for a few more weeks after the election. Uh, it makes me tired just thinking about it. Yeah, but thank God for the Vote Her podcast. We're trying to plan for it already. Right, right. <laughs> People will rely on this show for all the in-depth coverage because we have allies like Greg Bluestein willing to call in to our show. Greg, thanks so much. Thank you. Be safe, okay? So that was a great conversation with Greg Bluestein. You should all follow him on Twitter at Bluestein. Um, before we change a little topic here, I just want to play this clip because he's talking about his relationships with people. And I love this from Senator John McCain when he had this conversation with Meet the Press's Chuck Todd on the importance of the free press. You believe the press is the enemy? You believe any group of Americans are the enemy of another group of Americans? I was talking about the period, as you know, of the New World Order. A fundamental part of that New World Order was a free press. I hate the press. I hate you, especially. <laughs> but the fact is, I, we need you. We need a free press. We must have it. It's vital 
if you want to preserve, I'm very serious now, if you want to preserve democracy as we know it, you have to have a free and many times adversarial press. And uh, without it, I'm afraid that we would lose so much of our individual liberties over time. That's how dictators get started. That's, a, that's how dictators get started with tweets like that? With No, they get started by suppressing a free press. In other words, in consolidation of power, when you look at history, the first thing that dictators do is shut down the press. And I'm not saying that, that's, that, uh, that President Trump is trying to be a dictator. I'm just saying we need to learn the lessons of history. Now... There was one more thing we wanted to get to. By the way, we first we want to we've gotten so many great uh, topic ideas. Um, I'm going to be wearing Jen out. I mean, she's busy being a lawyer and a senator, and I just want to record this podcast every day. <laughs> yeah, I really do. Um, we want to talk about the Georgia Postcard Project, and so what this is about is a group that has been writing postcards since October 2019 to get vital information to Georgia voters about the election on November 3rd, and they want to do over 100,000 postcards, and they need your help. So Georgia has two Senate seats, 16 electoral votes, and they can flip the state house too. They're trying to make it go blue. Um, so if you can go ahead and follow this, on Facebook. It's the Georgia Postcard Project. We would love for you to get involved. And I love postcards. And just so you know, speaking of postcards, if I can just play this clip of the amazing Katie Porter, Representative Katie Porter, when she was asking the head, Dedroy, from the U.S. Postal Service, if he knew how much a postcard cost. And he didn't know. Mr. DeJoy, thank you for being with us today. What is the cost of a first-class postage stamp? 55 cents. Just wanted to check. What about to mail a postcard? I don't, I don't know, ma'am. You don't know the cost to mail a postcard? <laughs> I don't. What if I want to mail a, you said 55 cents for a first class stamp, but what if it's like one of those greeting cards, it's a square envelope, then what is the postage? I'll submit that I know uh, very little about a postage stamp. Wouldn't you think he'd be armed with that information? Well, especially if you've ever seen Katie Porter. <laughs> I mean, she is known for taking CEOs and the most powerful men in this country to task for not knowing the simplest thing about the businesses they run. So the fact that he wasn't prepared and hadn't done his homework probably spoke much more than him not knowing the cost. Unbelievable. So everybody follow the Georgia Postcard Project. Watch out for Katie Porter. Um uh, she could get me to do anything. Well, and look, every time you do a postcard and you put it in, in the mail, you're supporting the United States Postal Service, which I am all for. Absolutely. Okay, when we come back next time, we're going to talk more about voting. Uh, and a lot of stuff been happening in Georgia. Man, lots on absentee voting. Hope if you've got your application, fill it out, get it in, go to the portal. But we'll cover all of that and more next time. We want to thank Christina Larger, who is our producer, and we want to thank Terminus Records for our theme music today. We will be back next time to talk about more Georgia politics and everything in between. Thanks for listening. Thanks, y'all.